Welcome to the Actual Fluency Podcast. Each week you'll find inspirational, motivational interviews with some of the world's best language learners, industry experts, all trying to help you to learn foreign languages better, faster, and more efficiently. And here we go. If you're looking for a language teacher to enhance your language learning, then I highly recommend italki. Italki is the world's biggest tutoring platform and you can find thousands of teachers and tutors at very reasonable prices. Get a free lesson after completing your first lesson by going to languageteacher.co. Hey everyone and welcome back to Actual Fluency Podcast. This is episode 147. And today I'm joined by Marek Kahn, who's on to talk about his new book, Four Words for Friend, Why Using More Than One Language Matters Now More Than Ever. We also talk about how the ideas in the book relate to society today, using examples mostly from the UK, because all this Brexit is going on right now, so it's a great time to talk about. We talk about the role of languages in schools and basically integration, assimilation, and the... uh, nationalism and all these kind of heavy topics that society has to deal with in an ever developing world an ever globalizing world really and there was also recently it came out in the news here in the uk where i live that school children are worse and worse in foreign languages they some most of them don't even pick a foreign language if they have the choice and when they do actually go to the language classes they don't have much success and so they're encouraged by teachers and the system to pick topics they would have more success in where they can score those high grades that would get them into their uh, studies. And unfortunately, this is a very sad development and it's something that we talk about in this episode, but it's also something that I really want to do more about. So I'm trying to figure out ways we can really spread the, the interest of language learning, especially in the UK, but I think there's places in America that probably has similar problems. There's probably places around the world that have similar uh, challenges ahead of them when it comes to foreign languages, foreign cultures, immigration, assimilation, and just overall improving society. And I think it all starts with a bit of understanding. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It's a little bit special. Uh, Do check out the book, Forwards for Friend, and let's get to it. All right, Mark, welcome back to the show. Um, Do you want to just give the listeners a quick introduction to who you are, where you're from, and how you came up with the idea for your book. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, my name's Marek Kahn. I'm, uh, I'm a writer. I live in, in Brighton on the south coast of England. And uh, I've just written this this book, for, Four Words for Friend. Uh, well, so I've just written it. It's taken a little bit, uh, bit of a while. And uh, I started writing, I started working on it, actually, uh, towards the end of, of 2014, when I started thinking, oh, I don't really like a lot of... Uh, of the uh, what you might call the weather in society, uh, things seem to be getting very ominous and very tense. Everybody seemed to be getting really angry, and um, there seemed to be very little, uh, very little uh, stopping this this rising wave of of anger and suspicion and mutual antagonism. And I thought, well, this speaks to the heart of my experience, and uh, I would like to to. Uh, do what I can as a as a writer in my work to try and respond to this to try and offset it a bit, and the subject of language came very very readily to me at that point because we are not speaking my first language. My first language was Polish, and so the the home language, the family language. When I was when I was very small, uh, I couldn't hold a conversation of any great quality in 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 that language now because i've i've lost it and the the deterior the, the the experience of losing a language that one never quite finished learning um being able to do a lot with it but not not as much as as as, as one would want and have always having this nagging feeling that it was there and i needed to 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 engage with it this had been growing in in me for a number of years before that and i thought these two preoccupations sit together rather well because if we can get two languages to work together in 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 one mind and if we can get different languages working together within a community or within a society well this could be quite a powerful way or quite a significant way of offsetting this 
rising mood of suspicion and antagonism and hostility and anger. Mm. And as we mentioned before the the recording, this is a very big topic. So I don't I don't think we have any ambition of uh, even uncovering uh, uh, the tip of the iceberg here. But I think it's it's a That's very cool. important Books. topic. <laughs> it's it's certainly a very important topic, and 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 one that a lot of people who are listening to this would have been would would have felt in some way, even if they aren't from from the UK, where. Obviously, a lot of the turmoil is going on as we're recording this, with with Brexit seemingly going nowhere, and you know everyone is just trying to uh, become elected uh, for the next next general election, basically. And Europe is completely locked down politically, and you know May is uh, flailing, and yeah, it's, it's kind of a chaos that's going on. But I think the idea of that or the feeling that you're describing, I think a lot of people might have felt in different parts of the world, in different situations, whether it's when they were younger, when they maybe they their parents migrated and they are first generation or second generation immigrants. Um so that's that's why I'm really interested in this topic. What is what do you think where do you think that kind of unruliness comes from? Is it like um a fear of the unknown or is it like I mean, we probably have to use the UK as a kind of an anchor and ex- example, but you know, Brexit is a symptom, I suppose, of 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 a, a is it a lack of understanding of other cultures, or is it a is it a reaction to the things are the the economy going down, or what what would you say is the big kind of the defining factor of this kind of unruliness that started a couple of years back? Well, people have been wrestling with this for, for, for nearly three years now, and uh, and um, the sort of consensus opinion, if there is such a thing, keeps changing. But what what I feel has 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 emerged is is that it's much more to do with people's sense of who they are and who and what their their nation is than anybody really realised at the beginning of this this process. And I think that gives it uh, a lot in common with similar sorts of uh, of um, tensions and and uh, and unease uh, in in different parts of the world. Uh, I think people who imagine that everything's about the the economy have had to re- reevaluate that 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 idea and think actually, you know, people seem to want to seem to be prepared to pay for for uh, for for adjustments uh, that, that make them feel more comfortable about who they are and what their, their nation is. And looking at language, that's um, uh, that, that's perhaps quite revealing because uh, I came to the conclusion fairly early on that you can't begin to address the, the challenges of, of using more than one language unless you face up to the fact that language has two faces. Fundamentally, it has two purposes, each probably as important as the other. One is to enable communication, the other is to prevent it. So to give you a little example, somebody's on a bus, it could be in the UK, but it could be in all sorts of countries, and this is, these sorts of uh, encounters have been recorded in, in different continents. It's not just about, about, uh, about Britain, though we have had a bit of a rash of them. And somebody's chatting on the phone, in a foreign language, maybe they're chatting to to, to their uh, their mother who's in a different country. Uh, this is one particular example, a local example that uh, somebody told us about. And somebody goes, "We speak English or whatever the language is in this country." Right. And that's that that sort of uh, response is well. I mean, you can come back and say, "Well, uh, yeah, we also mind our own, our own business in this country," but that's not really an adequate response. <laughs> Right, because what that the, what the objector is saying is, when you're in this country, when you're in public, you have to con- uh, you have to conform to certain norms, and you, even though you might be foreign or you have, might have some ability to engage with a foreign language or a foreign culture, you have to behave as if you're a native. You have to speak the speak the uh, the native language, uh, the, the dominant language, and only that language. So. Um, 
the question of, of suspicion of the, 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 the hostility that this arouses, if you look at the, um, probably tells us quite a bit about people's intuitions about the, about the two faces of language. So um, in some cases, people react very badly when they, uh, when they hear a foreign language being spoken and they go, stop talking about me in your, in your lingo, as one woman said, stop talking about me in that language. Mm. Really? How do you know I'm talking about you? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, in one particular case, they probably were because. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The woman, the woman in question, had uh, uh, decided take taken it upon herself to give a bit of a lecture in a uh, in an underground train carriage in London about uh, her view of immigration and uh, the harm it was doing to the country. So when the foreign guys were talking in foreign language, you know, maybe they were. But you know, people tend to think it's all about them, and. I mean, it may be or it may not be, but actually, in a profound sense, it is about them. It's about who they think they are and their relationship to the place and the space around them. This particular woman goes, don't talk, speak English when you're on my train. And that's very revealing. She thought right. she, she viewed it as her train. As a British person, it belonged to her. It was part of her her her, her space, her, her territory, her, her property. So... This insistence on behaving in um, conforming to, to, the, to the norms of the dominant community, I think, tells us a lot about about uh, the where that kind of anger comes from and, and how and how people perceive it. So it's not just that's bad manners. Um, though it can be. It's also you're talking about me. You must be up to something. You must be trying to exploit me. Mm. And all these suspicions, uh, well, you know, one way to address them actually is to engage, to 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 uh, to put yourself in a position where you can maybe actually understand what the other person is 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 talking about by learning a bit of another language. Just see that, yeah, that would be a great advert for for learning a, another language. Finally, understand what people are saying around you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In London, it's tricky because you'd probably like, you know, any bus is like, you know, 50 different possibilities. Yeah, that is tricky. Yeah. But then again, because of that, I find, or well, I mean, this is what I hear. I, I obviously only have anecdotal evidence, but because London is so multicultural, I, I, I suppose there would be less of this feeling of ownership over, let's say, public transport languages or, you know, a, a bit less because you just get used to it. You know, if you have the same commute and you hear five languages every day, after a few months, you're like, well, okay, this is how it works. But if you live in, I don't know, in, in, in the Midwest somewhere where it's, you know, just farms and stuff and you never hear any other language than English, then when you finally do, it's, it's kind of a shock as well because you're not used to it. Well, yeah, I mean, people react in different ways. You know, a, a, a lot of people in London, um, do seem to be comfortable with living uh, uh, among a, a whole load of different uh, languages and, pe and people from a whole load of different different backgrounds. On the other hand, some people don't. Um, uh, Nigel Farage, for, for example, uh, um, expressed his discomfort about uh, catching a commuter train out of one of the uh, one of the London uh, main London stations, and he counted off about. Um, and named each station along the line. The station stopped at for about six stations until he and he said, "I didn't hear hear English being spoken until until about fifteen minutes down 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 the line." Right. <laughs> and, you know, because that that's how commuters uh, always talk. They always count off the stations that they that they they've passed uh, in the uh, you know the the, the grey purgatory of of um, London commuting. But um, you know, so, so it depends. Um, my serious point is, it depends on on what feelings you bring to this experience of living in, in, in the city. Right. But I suppose also that that could even be like a, there's a misrepresentation there as well. If, if, if English people or British people uh, have a certain cultural upbringing, maybe they're more reserved or maybe more keep to themselves. I don't know, maybe less likely to, to speak on the bus to begin with. <laughs> Not that that's a point, but um, I, I think these stories that, that you've you you have a few of them in the book about kind of these encounters and you know it it really is shocking I feel like if if you're living in a country and you're working there and you you kind of fully integrated some people have lived there you know for 
for 40 years or more and then somebody says in this country we speak english i mean it's just hard it's just hard dropping isn't it to to hear that kind of kind of language being being spoken just because that person was using their their heritage language or their first language to talk to someone else in it yeah and 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 um this this presumption that you can intrude into people's private lives and private conversations in in this this way is you know, as i mean i meant i said jokingly you know that we do also have a tradition in this country that that uh, you you mind your own business and keep out of and don't eavesdrop on private conversations but you know there's kind of a serious point in there as as well and also i i i i should say that i think for a lot of um what's the word i was going to say indigenous for a moment but for a lot of people who um who are british and don't have a, a, a an immediately diverse background um they also, I think, feel very. Many of them also have felt very distressed and disturbed by, by these kinds of incidents because they think, well, this is not who we are. Mm. All of the, I mean, this is something that you do here in this in this country in Britain an awful lot nowadays from people who are dismayed about the, the turn of events. I mean, dismayed from the point of view that they want to remain in the European Union and uh, and uh, disturbed by the the nationalism and nativism that that's been uh, uh, that that's emerged on the other, the other side of the argument um there's a feeling that we've gone back you know that 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 uh, we thought that we'd made permanent irreversible progress towards inclusion and openness in in this country and actually it turns out that uh, we took an awful lot for granted that we shouldn't have done but do you think that's because it's coming to the surface now or do you think that it's always like has it always been there just this kind of feeling or does it does one bring out the other because i would imagine i mean this might be completely wrong i don't have any evidence to support this but i would imagine as the kind of the european immigration you know grow grew and grew which is i mean that's quite a while ago you know with the i i know especially uh poland uh hungary Romania, a lot of people came over uh, in the last couple of decades. So surely the more people, the more foreign languages there are in the country, the more people who have that background, the more normal, quote unquote, it becomes and, and more uh, accepting the, the the population becomes of it. Or is it, yeah, yeah. what do you think about that actually? Because I, I think that's interesting. I would imagine that if you had like let's 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 say we had like a tribe we'd never met anyone from outside before and suddenly someone comes who maybe has a different name or a different language or something you know you can understand going back to ages ago how that could be you could be suspicious over that but once you've met you know thousands and thousands over a long period of time and found out well these people are not actually as bad as as, as they were originally made out to be um, yet it seems like the problems are getting worse. So is that representation? Is it just because we're hearing more about them? Or is it because all these changes, all these what's happening is bringing out that core overly nationalistic uh, people or, or subgroup of the population? Well, the um, the, uh, the the big... Uh, uh... Uh, event was in 2004 when uh, the uh, formerly communist countries joined the European Union and Britain, um, the United Kingdom, uh, uh, allowed unrestricted immigration unlike uh, most of the other countries in the EU. And I, I remember saying to, to uh, somebody I was working with uh, at the time, uh, a few weeks before this, and said, you have got no idea what's about to happen. Mm -hmm. Because I, I, I knew from my Contacts with with Polish people, just how what was just how many of them were were were, were waiting to come and take opportunities to earn money and uh, and uh, uh, experience life in the, in this country. Now, for a couple of years, everything was pretty great, um, or certainly uh, compared to to previous um, waves of immigration, it was it was absolutely extraordinary. Uh, uh, Eastern Europeans, Poles in particular, enjoyed a very good reputation among the middle classes, among as hard workers. Um, their 
workmates and shall we say competitors for work did generally acknowledge that they that their uh, their work ethic at least and then then came the the financial crisis then came 2008 mm. and this was a global phenomenon and personally i think that uh, uh, what we're experiencing now what we're seeing now around the world the the retreat from 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 outside from the outside outsiders for the the perception of other people as threats as competitors as rivals uh, this must surely be rooted in in the financial crisis and the way that we that the world hasn't really ever quite got over it that you know people a lot of ordinary people's uh, incomes have remained flat or even got worse and uh, and so on mm-hmm. now the other the other point is is uh, you, you you've suggested that it's to do with that familiarity will make people feel more comfortable with um, with people who are different because they don't seem so different um I mean, I'm, there's a huge debate uh, amongst sociologists about, about uh, whether it works that way or whether whether right. it works the other way. But uh, leaving leaving the the experts' uh, um, assessments aside, and I think what we can say is is that um, um, certainly English nationalism in particular has 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 taken shape, has hardened over the past uh, decade or so. Um, and other nationalisms in other countries clearly have have uh, have hardened uh, in in similar sorts of ways. And whatever people might feel about individual foreigners, if they want to consider them foreigners, um, um, that's not the same as as wanting to share share space, share share a country with them. So it's perfectly possible for them to think, oh yeah, they, they you know the migrant workers. Uh, uh, a decent person, and uh, you know the, this particular one's all right. And also to think, well, actually, I'd really rather they went home. We went back to being a a country full of people who only speak one language. On this podcast, I've interviewed hundreds of language learners, some of the world's greatest polyglots and industry experts. And one thing they all agree on is the value of one-to-one tutoring lessons. And for this, I highly recommend italki. They have thousands of teachers in all price ranges, and they even have certified teachers who have taken diplomas or have degrees in the language you're learning. So whether you're just brushing up on your Italian ahead of a trip to Rome, or you want to master Russian to take the uh, exam, or whatever your goals are in languages, italki has a tutor suitable for you. And compared to private tutoring offline, is really affordable. You can find informal tutors down to $5 an hour, or and you can have trial lessons for even less. So if you want to master a language uh, from the comfort of your own home, and you even get a $10 credit when you complete your first lesson, go to languageteacher.co and check out italki. It might be the best thing you do for your language learning this year. So how much nationalism is too much <laughs> because I, I i think there is a positivity too- you know protecting your ideals and you know being proud of your country and your language and everything but clearly there's a there's a quite a line that you can step over but because I, w- the reason that i ask is not just because i think the answer is, is somewhat obvious that once you start targeting people for not being under that umbrella it starts to become really bad but the reason i say is because i also feel playing the devil's advocate a little bit that there is a counter movement as well that's also going overboard where you know people saying uh you know i I, someone like farage is i think is an idiot basically i mean he's he's a wandering um hypocrite basically first of all but uh, some of the things you know he kind of gets treated like everything he says is racist and everything is xenophobic and everything is like super nationalistic but actually if you, i think a lot of it or at least half of it you know it's just normal this is you know we we have to protect our country's interests first not necessarily for the groups uh, for certain groups but sometimes that gets interpreted as well he's he's trying to uh, resurrect you know national socialism 
and uh, and start that kind of movement. So, so how how much is is enough, <laughs> and uh, is it is it a positive thing, nationalism, or is it is it always negative? I I don't know. I don't think it's so much a question of the quantity as as, as the quality of nationalism. Now, um, let's use another word. Let's use patriotism. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, because that's got more positive connotations. Now, um, is being patriotic um, in one's feelings towards one particular country uh, um, necessarily... Uh, um, sorry, I'll start that again. Um, I think with, with nationalism, it's it's perhaps not so much the quantity of it as, as the quality. Now, there are two... Uh, distinct, uh, distinctive um, strands of nationalism. One is what you might, or what can be called nativist nationalism, ethno-nationalism, which is all about the idea that that the world is divided up into into uh, into ethnic groups with lines drawn around them, and each um, ideally uh, each each ethnic group is uh, is going to have a, a state to call its own. Um, uh, I think with nationalism, it's not so much the quantity, but the quality of, of nationalism. Uh, we can distinguish between two different kinds of nationalism here. So that on the one hand, there's ethnic nationalism, ethno-nationalism, which is built around the idea that that the world can be parceled up, humankind can be parceled up into small, discrete groups, uh, ethnic groups, which we can call nations, and ideally each nation should have its own state with a border around it. Mm-hmm. And actually, that border is often a language border, um, which is relevant to uh, to the, the the problem that I'm address. The other kind of, of of nationalism is sometimes known as civic nationalism, and that's the kind where you say, "Hmm, identity should be based on not on belonging to a particular ethnic group." But on one's relationship to a state as a citizen of that state, so a state can have people of all sorts of different ethnic origins, but they're all equal and they're all united by the fact that they're that they're citizens. Um, I think you know which kind of nationalism I'm 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 more comfortable with. Uh, of course, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, of course. Yeah, um, I, th- I just think it's a it's an interesting kind of topic to bring in because I've seen. You know, I, this is also probably more American, really, that uh, where people are kind of, you know, supporting the the troops, supporting the flag, supporting their president, even even if they might not think he's the greatest person in the world. You know, and having to defend what is basically just a simple kind of part of being, uh, you know, being a part of a a society, a country. Um, so I think it goes. It does go both ways uh, to some extent uh, with with the nationalism and well patriotism we can call it as well um, and I think people should definitely be proud of uh, of, of the country they're in uh, but we can always work to improve it but I well, guess that's can... sorry. go ahead well you know it's possible to be proud of more than one country you know uh, if you have um, if you have a, a heritage um, that connects you to a country other than the one that you live in and that you've grown up in, or, 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 um, or you you feel that you're part of two countries. You can be patriotic about both of them. Mm, or, or definitely, even, yeah. You know, it's not, and this is this is this is the key. It's not a zero sum. You know, it's not. Oh well, if I'm more patri- patriotic about uh, uh, about my country A, I have to be less patriotic in my feelings towards country B. And that's the thing. Being part of of, of 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 one nation doesn't make you necessarily any less the part of another nation. And um, this is something that I have to sometimes to assert about myself. Right. And I think the European or the Eurozone definitely has created a, a much more global, well, a global, I guess that's a bit of a a misrepresentation. <laughs> it's not the whole the whole globe yet. That's uh, that's connected uh, with no borders. But just having that area where people can move freely and, and that's really generating some exciting 
uh, I would say developments for for integration assimilation people get more opportunity and the languages that we hear like going back to London you know that's a big part of it obviously that people could now suddenly move freely work in another euro country and uh, and go there but going back to the language just for a second I am I'm sad by kind of the way minority languages or heritage languages get kind of no priority whatsoever like you can even talk in the uk about you know actual you know you know geographical minority languages like welsh and um the scottish languages and and um all these kind of uh, minority languages that are being squeezed and kind of encouraged to use english but but also in the in the term of this discussion the it seems like to me that the new generations let's say the second generation um immigrants or you know the the kids that that are starting school now they use the heritage language less and less so it wouldn't take many generations for it to be just a historical thing almost i would really love to see more focus on that like in on the school curriculum like uh my suggestion last time was like a a language tester class maybe in the first year of uh uh, you know, uh, I don't know what you call it over here, the normal school, <laughs> you know, when they're like six to six to 16, uh, you know, have that taster just to see, first of all, there are actually other languages in this country. You know, some people might never hear it. Like we say in London, you will, of course, but if you are other places, you might not hear those different languages. But what do you see as some positive changes we can do? Maybe start with languages uh, or language. And then just in general, like, what can we do to, what can each citizen do to, uh, well, I guess I'm not a citizen, but each resident, anyway, uh, do to improve the situation? Okay, well, uh, I think you're, um, and unfortunately, I think you're absolutely right about the the likelihood of, of heritage languages disappearing. And um, the evidence that we have um, is that it takes three generations in effect. So what happens is that uh, um, migrants arrive and they speak their, the language of the country they came from to their kids, and their kids speak it back to them, And uh, but they also speak the, the, the dominant language of the country they're living in. Yeah. You know, quite a lot of the time they, 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 uh, they speak it to each other, so siblings will... will uh, will speak the, the the dominant language that they've picked up um in some cases to, so that their parents don't understand what they're talking about but but um but <laughs> even if they can they, they will they will gradually shift and as time goes by well you know obviously uh, um um the parents eventually aren't around anymore uh, are not in a position to converse um so that second generation hasn't got anybody to talk to and uh, they have as well, I suppose. Already. Well, they have. Sorry. Yeah, limited writing as well. I suppose already starts at the second generation because they they don't go to school in the in the language day to day. So they they would speak with the family maybe, but the actual writing or or reading, especially if it's a foreign uh, set of characters or a, a different alphabet, then that can be already at the second generation, right? Yeah. And uh, a very, very important thing, I mean, uh, and I speak from personal experience here, uh, is that, you know, um, kids want to fit in. And, you know, you, you arrive at school and you go, uh-oh, everybody here is speaking a different language. And you know, um, one, one researcher reported very poignantly, I think, um, um, talking about um, children whose parents um, were who originally from Bosnia and um, came to, to Britain um, as a result of the conflict there, um, saying, turning around to their parents and saying, don't speak our language when you pick me up from school. Uh, right. I think that's terribly, terribly sad and, and also incredibly easy to understand. So um, what do we do about that? Well, um, firstly, uh, I think we have to do everything that we can to encourage um, children to feel that these languages are valuable and 
they, something to be proud of rather than to be ashamed of, something to acknowledge rather than to, to hide. They, should, they absolutely should not feel that they, they have to conceal their language or, or refrain from speaking it. Mm. Um, it's also important, I think, for educators to, and, and well, parents uh, um, and, and educators to feel comfortable about uh, non-dominant languages. So in other words, if, you, if you're in Britain and at home, um, a different language is spoken to English, um, that, that should actually be regarded as an asset, actually a way of, of helping kids learn rather than an obstacle. Because the one thing you do not have to worry about is that uh, a child entering mainstream society, entering a school system where there is a, a big dominant language like English, they are going to get the English. Oh, it's yeah. <laughs> Don't worry about that. It may happen just slightly more slowly than you'd like, but it really doesn't. So it's really not what you have to worry about. Um, it would be great if people just felt, oh, we're real. This uh, our child is in, in in danger of losing such a such a great asset that the, this other language, because and it's, a, it's an asset not only in, in itself that uh, it gives insight. Massive. Yeah, it gives it gives insights into how language works, how people think, how not just how other people think, but how you yourself think. It, it helps you understand the world and to, to understand your place in it and to interact with other people. So that's really important. Now, moving on through the system, um, uh, there's the question of formal, formal education. This, this is actually quite difficult um, because although there's loads and loads of languages spoken in a country like, like uh, the United Kingdom, um, the concentrations are... Uh, are very uneven and so you might it's often the case that you'll get you know a few children in the school who are able to to speak quite a lot of uh, a given language but there's nobody to teach them and there are not enough of them to to make a class viable mm. and a few years ago one of the we have um uh, state school exams or school exams are administered by um a number of uh, organizations examining boards and one of them said, oh, we can't support a lot of these languages any longer. We're going to drop languages like uh, Polish from the, from the, uh, the, the uh, exams that we offer. Um, some of the other, uh, some of the, the other uh, organizations have, have taken these over, but it does illustrate uh, the difficulty of, of, um, of uh, supporting these languages within institutions. And that is actually really important because um, uh, it's a common misapprehension that uh, that this is that these heritage languages and um, kids who who speak uh, other languages at home they're good for the school and uh, and um, and uh, and it's good for them because they can just stroll into the exam on the day and get them and come out with an A grade. Oh no, they don't. Um, it's only one um, friend of my son's with, was, who speaks Spanish at home was was. Uh, put out to find himself with a, a grade C or something like that. <laughs> and, and the, but the point here is is that um, although as a medium of communication, um, uh, it's not a problem. I mean, children can speak informally. They can um, they can communicate with with their families and loved ones and friends and so on. But uh, it's also very important to get uh, get skills in using the standard forms of language. Just in exactly the same way that that uh, that kids um, learn English uh, grammar formally uh, in, in school, um, even though they can speak it perfectly well already, or perfectly right. well to communicate already, they don't speak it in, in to to in well enough in the standard form. So that's something else that would be really good to to support. Now, um, maybe that might involve um, even you know. Foreign embassies um, um, or, or philanthropic institutions um, uh, for, for for diasporas in 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 in, uh, in supporting education. I don't know, but what I do know is that losing those 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 languages and not developing them um, that's really wasting assets both for the individuals concerned and for the larger society. Yeah, and you know, as someone who who is uh, kind of bilingual, I think. I'm I'm really I feel so lucky to have received this kind of upbringing. Uh, I mean, and it wasn't even 
like what, my parents only spoke to me in Danish, so it wasn't from home, but it just kind of panned out that way that I would spend a lot of time in English and I have my Danish language as a, it's, it's almost like you almost feel a bit like a superhero sometimes, you know, where you have, or, or a spy maybe where you, you kind of, you can function in English and, and, and hang out with people, but you have that secret there and you can understand how a kid, if you're five, six years old and you're trying to fit in and everyone's mocking you for your last name or something, you know, how kids are, they're terrible. Even, you know, the, completely ignoring any kind of uh you know ethnic group or language or anything you know i i was in probably one of the ethnically most homogenous schools in in my kind of geographical district when i grew up and you know people just made made fun of me for other things like uh my size or you know it doesn't matter kids will find ways to to be nasty to other kids so so that's probably more of a a general pedagogical problem um but of course if you discourage people from or kids from using their the language in a way where they stop using it and, and therefore really lose it over time that's kind of the the worst worst that can happen but i would i would say i don't know if you saw it, it was in the news here in a couple of days ago i think that language classes are really not doing very well in the uk there was something like they reported something like a fifty percent drop in interest. Um, I think in the UK, correct me if I'm wrong. You can kind of pick your classes once you get to a certain level. Was it A levels, or can you pick a GCs already? Probably GCSEs. Right, and that's pretty young, isn't it? When you start GCSEs. Yeah. Well, the things that um, what's happened there is is that. Uh, um, Students or um, children, if you like, uh, um, seem to be reluctant to choose language options because they think it's going to be difficult, and uh, they're worried that uh, that they won't get particularly good grades. Mm. What a, what a sad, <laughs> sad thing this is. Because you know th things. I mean, if you live, um, I don't know, people living living in other countries may not get this immediately, but I think anybody living in in the UK is going to go, oh yeah, grades, you know, because there is this complete obsession um, in, in the British educational system with attainment, with grades and so on. And it's not about learning stuff. It's not about ideas. It's not about understanding the world. It's about, will I get a good grade? Yeah. And, you know, and it's not the children's fault, you know, um, and it's not really the school's fault. Everybody, you know, the whole system is driving them towards towards that that completely joyless uh, uh, view of view of education. Yeah. And there are other problems. Um, the the, uh, the the BBC report that you're talking about, which uh, um, reported a decline in in uh, in uh, modern language teaching. Uh, really just uh, confirms uh, a trend that's been apparent for, for quite some time. And it also, I think, um, underlines some of the, the, the problems that the attitudes uh, that, that have brought about the situation. So one thing is, I mean, um, uh, it's been reported that language teaching at the primary level in this country, in Britain, isn't that great. So kids are getting to, to the stage in, in in schooling where um, it actually gets quite hard, mm. but they haven't had an especially successful grounding in it. And so they find it even harder. Right. But also, and this is um, not peculiar to Britain, but um, but it's, it's uh, more marked in Britain. Um, it does seem that, that uh, British school children just don't like and don't feel com as comfortable with languages as students in other European countries. I mean, mm. uh, part of the research for my book, I, I went to Latvia, which has a very remarkable uh, set of preoccupations and arrangements um, uh, governing the relationship of the Latvian language and uh, the, the, uh, that of the, the Russian-speaking minority. And I went to a, to a, a school for Russian-speaking kids there and uh, you know, just chatting, and, and the head head teacher was just genuinely surprised when I said that languages weren't terribly popular in in in, in British schools. And she, I mean, it wasn't kind of like, oh, well, we know that about you, but it's kind of, 
why would that? Why on earth would that be? Well, why that would be, I guess, is um, there are a number of reasons. So one is kids don't see the need because everybody speaks English to the level that they feel they um, is required for, for for their lives. In other words, they'll they'll go abroad and they can get by in, uh, in English as as, mm -hmm. as tourists. Um, another reason I think is is that it doesn't that English doesn't have um, or foreign languages don't have the same positive warm associations that English has for 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 children abroad. So in other words, like you know, if if you're living in many European countries, um, well, half the songs uh, that that you uh, that read your, your personal top 100 uh, are likely to be in English, you know, right. uh, in a loop what you're reading. Yeah. So, so when you come to the English class, you've already got this, 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 uh, this um, warm image of, of, of the language. And that really doesn't uh, apply in, in, in uh, classrooms in the UK. So there are, there are a number of, of, of problems. Um, and unfortunately, um, uh, there are now other reasons to, to for, for people to to feel that uh, languages aren't important to them, and this is one rather sad thing was uh, development was that uh, one report um, found that uh, a number of parents were saying, "Well, why do our kids need to to learn foreign languages? We're leaving the leaving the EU." <laughs> um, wow. Well, yeah, and the thing is that these. Um, these tended to be um, uh, parents in more deprived areas, the ones that uh, where where there were quite high, um, relatively high votes to leave. Um, and uh, yeah, sure. I mean, um, in practical terms, you know, possibly the you know the the the, the, the value of the, the economic value of, of speaking a foreign language. Um, has reduced for those kids probably it wasn't actually that great great for a lot of them in the first place what i think this is, is is more an expression of attitudes towards language you know it's just saying look we've had enough you know we're heading we're heading off on our own don't you know don't bother us us, us with 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 more foreign stuff right and that's that's oh, really, really sad yeah it is I as as, uh, as per usual, I just want a quick devil's advocate on this one as well, because if the system, obviously I think the system has a lot to do with, with language success in the school, but if the system up until now fails consistently to produce any meaningful result for the younger school children, let's say people who, I mean, they would probably be offered French or German or something. Which is a whole nother problem in itself, not saying that those languages are not good to learn, but people, you know, the the kids might be like, well, why should I learn French? It just seems so arbitrary in a way, but obviously that's historical as well. But if the success of those classes in German and French fails to yield any meaningful language ability by the end of the A-levels or, or whatever the final level is, then you can even argue if the if there was ever a point to it, you know, obviously there's good teachers, there's good students, there are like exceptions to the rule. But one of the things that I've kind of been working on and, and doing why I do all this like language encouragement and, and, and podcasts and everything, we're trying to catch people who have had bad experiences with languages in school and then they come back later as maybe young adults or, or even later in the, their adulthood to kind of go back to it because they had that negative experience. So my question is, maybe it's a bit of a leading question as per usual, <laughs> is it, is the value of language classes, is, is the idea of getting a taster for the language or an, a kind of a introduction and in an introduction to another culture, a kind of a getting your feet wet, even if they don't produce any meaningful results for the average student, to you know, to actually use the language or even consume any kind of content in that language, is that enough to to be useful, or would it then be better to kind of completely re, re rethink how we look at it and then use 
I, I don't know. I'd like to see kind of like how I did it. In, in I know that's completely impossible because of the the logistics. But I had I was at a, an English program in Denmark, so I would have Danish and English classes. If I had moved to England, I would not be able to have Danish classes. Probably, probably not at all. So over time, let's say I started as a six-year-old or something, I would probably get worse and worse in Danish unless I had really good reasons to use it. But because I, when I grew up, I did it completely bilingually, they're both really strong, and I had both of them. Um, so that's a really long way of saying if language classes don't yield results in the average school for the average student, do they still have value in this kind of you know, cultural enrichment and if so, what can we, what, what should really be done to improve that? Because I don't think we should force students to learn a language just for the sake of, like, you know, the German and French. Like, yeah, I love those languages. They're great. I speak German myself. I think French sounds lovely. And I, I did do a bit of it in school. But I can honestly understand if students are like, well, why should I learn this? If they have absolute new connection, would it not be much better to have, say, electorals like, Polish, Hungarian, Chinese. Uh, there's something exciting to get the students a little bit more into it. <laughs> Hungarian, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, fantastic uh, language, you know. Much, <laughs> <laughs> it does sound a little as though saying um, the the British are rubbish at languages. So let's encourage them to do ones that are even more difficult and obscure, as far from the British point of view. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, I mean, yeah. So, um, firstly, as as I as I said, um, there's evidence from surveys to indicate that. Uh, British uh, school students are uh, less happy, didn't basically like languages that they're studying less than their counterparts in in uh, in, in other countries, and also they they perform less. Well, they attain um, um, they don't attain such high levels, and in particular, um, they're far fewer ending up being really good at uh, the language that they're learning. So you're you're getting a a, a higher um, uh, proportion of, of students ending up with a kind of bog standard low level of, of, of attainment. And uh, um, I have mixed feelings about this because one of my big messages is that a little of a language gets you a long way and you should never feel intimidated or should try not to feel intimidated by the fact that you're not perfectly fluent in a language. You know, you should just go ahead and say, not say, how many mistakes am I making? But what what can I actually do with this language? Right. And uh, you know, and if you and if you ask that question, the answer will quite often will generally be oh, rather a lot more than I thought I could. So that's um, so um, I can see both sides of of, of the question there. Um, I think it's important for um, for young people, uh, uh, school children, stu students, to learn languages. Um, I don't know whether it's a great idea to make um, taking them to any particular level compulsory or not, um, but I kind of feel that they should. Um, I, I, I think that uh, it would be good to give um, languages the same sort of uh, prestige that what's uh, now called STEM, science, technology, engineering, and maths is given in the British educational system right. um, because they felt it's felt to be nationally important. So um, what we do about this uh, is, is, is it, it's very tricky because um, I think it, it, it takes us in, into an area that, that's perhaps a bit unfamiliar and, and, and not immediately intuitive unless you actually have some sort of uh, experience of, of having another language in your head. And that is the, uh, the value of knowing that other languages are different, to put it, um, to put it in, a, in a rather uh, rather enigmatic way. To know that languages don't map onto each other, that, that, uh, that Russian is not English in some funny code. Um, in other words, to understand 
that the way that anybody thinks that that, that you think um, is structured by the particular language that that you're that you're thinking in or speaking in, and your relationships with with other people, the way you interact with other people, uh, is shaped by the language that you happen to be using. I mean, well, a very obvious example is the existence of polite forms like do or or, um, or vu, uh, do in, in, in German, vu in, in, and you in French and so on, and uh, different modes of address, which change the relationship between people when they, when they, uh, when they meet each other. Yeah. So it's about knowledge. So I'd like people to, kids to, to, to learn languages, not just to learn a particular language, but to learn about language. Right. So a, a more, a better use of a class could be instead of having French, it could be European cultures and languages, like a more of a explorative topic rather than drilling uh, verbs and grammar rules. I, th- I think, well, I, I, I feel that the, uh, about, um, about languages, um, um at school level i think uh, the way that i feel about science teaching you know it shouldn't be about lists and rules it should be about the, the wonderful insights you know the excitement that you can get from uh insights into into the into the world whether it's the social world of, of using language or the, the the natural world or the material world that you understand through through learning science in an inspiring way okay that's the word inspiration inspiration yeah yeah, yeah. And uh, i think finally got to it inspiration so the kids need to be inspired yeah i think that's true and i i think when you look at i remember watching the uh michelle thomas documentary a couple well it's very old now but it's um it was showing him it was the first time that he'd actually shown kind of behind the scenes how it worked of course then came the tapes and everything uh so everyone could do it but you know showing him i think he was teaching French to uh, some kind of it might have been in a school in London. I'm not sure. Um, and then you know, showing how excited the kids can be, even when they said up front, "Oh, I hate languages. I'm terrible at languages." But when they start to get those results so quickly with that method, which is just an example method, you could use a lot of different ways. And and there are, I think, there are a lot of great teachers out there as well. But unfortunately, often they're just bound by the system, like the we we have to uh, concede, unfortunately, I think that the, a big limiting factor is simply the kind of rigid way that the curriculum and grades and everything is set up, as we talked about earlier. And even worse, I guess, is when you make actual legislation. Uh, you talked about Latvia. Was Latvia the one where they said, where they kind of ruled that you, everything had to be in Latvian? Or was that Lithuania? I forgot. Well, not quite everything, but... but, but um uh yeah that we're talking the about. russian population was being kind of uh my what do you call it uh not treated uh equally anyway <laughs> even if even if it's a big part of the the population uh over there so government intervention is is the worst and that really kills off everything like uh, another example is that there was a lot of danish people immigrated uh emigrated to america in in the beginning of the uh, the twentieth century uh, or even before, and you know the they had Danish sermons in in church and they had a kind of vibrant community. But then the the governor of the state was like, yeah, everyone everything should be done in English. So all the Danish sermons went away. And if you you know as a predominantly uh, I don't know what you call it like a you know church society a Lutheran church society when you're kind of focal point of the community suddenly gets told no you can't use your heritage language anymore the language just dies and it's it is gone now so that's from that's less than 100 years for for that to happen well uh, america it has been crazy called, isn't it yeah america has been called uh, the language a uh, language graveyard <laughs> the language murderer but i mean i think this is um um it could have been different i mean, I, I was I, i'm always a bit cautious about about um generalizing from what happens in the united states to to, to the entire world because uh the united states has its own particular pattern of immigration of community formation of of, of, of governance and so on um and 
things can be done and are done differently in, in different places. For instance, north of the border in Canada, of course, where you um, you have bilingualism in, um, between uh, French and English and also, of course, um, indigenous languages, plus loads and loads of, of uh, languages brought, brought by migrants. So there can be different different ways of doing it. And by the way, um, uh, to be fair, um, in, in Latvia, I mean, they, they, uh, it's a complicated situation there, but the outcome, I think, has been really rather good because it's um, because it's uh, it's producing a bilingual, a sustainably bilingual nation. And I think that, that uh, or that's kind of not what they're setting out to do. Um, is it's rather a happy outcome? Yeah, well, that's good. I, I think that's that's the ideal situation. I think people who live in bilingual, you know, even trilingual countries down in Europe, that it's just a, a lot more interesting. I find it's it's a very it's a very warm and welcoming kind of a starting point. Anyway, you know, obviously it's not flawless, but I think if you have more languages, you definitely it, it just invites mutual understanding on, on a whole different level you can connect with people and i get that over here as well I, like i moved here as an adult so i don't have the experience of a lot of uh, migrants who have kids who then have to grow up kind of from the beginning in a new language as a with a, a heritage language but i i relate to people over here who are in a similar situation to me even if they're from germany or spain or hungary or whatever if they moved over when they were an adult they have that same language in the not the same language sorry the same kind of um, condition uh, the, the, they came over with something else and and so that for me is really positive and and yeah like i said it, it sometimes makes me feel like a spy sometimes a superhero just knowing that I, I'll always have that part of me, uh, I think it's really great. It is great, yeah. But um, interesting that you should use um, a word like spy. Um, that, <laughs> well, because you know that that takes us back to the suspicions that people have you know, that, that you're eavesdropping on them, or um, that they don't know what you're talking about, and, and uh, you know that you're. You're using codes and, and so on, and actually, you know, really, just you're talking English, aren't you? But it's just this, you know, in some sort of secret code. Yeah, definitely, and and there is something to it, you know. If I, if I'm speaking, I'm conscious of it. If I'm speaking Danish or another language in in public, I am conscious that it does attract some attention. Not not so much in London, like we talked about. I think people are quite used to it there. But if I do it somewhere else, people definitely. Yeah, they definitely look an extra time just whoa what's going on here mm -hmm. so even for me who's you know quite you know my english is quite good it can pass for maybe not a native speaker here but some a native speaker from somewhere um i still feel that for sure it's not negative for me yet i haven't experienced anything negative due to due to my language or speaking another language um I would say, on the contrary, I, I think I get quite a, a positive response. But I don't know if that's because I don't know if that's because of the language, or it's just unusual. You know, there aren't that many Scandinavian. Uh, uh, you don't hear it so often. I don't know if that's part of it, but um, but yeah, definitely, there's there's some uh, there's some subtext to it there that. But maybe that's because I just moved over here. You know, I I can't really feel. I can't really feel a part of this society completely after having lived here for just two years. I mean, I like it here. Don't get me wrong. I'm a resident here, but I think it will take a little bit longer maybe to get the, once I'm a citizen, maybe I'll feel more like a part of the, the, the a full, a fully integrated part of the community. But for now, I feel like I'm just a, a visitor and uh, I would probably feel that in, in most countries that isn't Denmark. Well, um, I look forward to you becoming a British citizen. <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, highly recommend the book uh, Four Words Friend, which is uh, I, like I, I mentioned this last time. It's not really a book where you you know you open a, a page or or a chapter and 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 you see what that's all about. It's really a, a you really take people through a journey of discovery in terms of this language phenomenon, what it means to you know be part of be part of a different almost be part of two worlds um so i really really enjoy that as kind of a 
yeah, it's a it's a good it's a good way of writing. I think you don't just have like argument one, argument two. It's kind of like a, a discovery, and also, of course, you're using your personal background as a as a as a method or as a tool to to really heighten that experience. So, and that's out now uh, everywhere. I just heard from from Rebecca, the the uh, the publisher, that it's it should be out everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's officially published in the States in, uh, at the beginning of April, which is a bit odd. But uh, even if you are in the States, you can certainly get a hold of it right now. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for coming on and, and trying to attack these big <laughs> topics. I don't know how far we've uh, we've come to uh, to some kind of uh, a plan on how to improve all these things. But I guess with a little bit of positivity, a bit of uh, new thinking here and there, and, and just a bit of awareness, we, we're, we're on the right path. Yeah, well, uh, you're, you're quite right. I mean, it, um, um, well, certainly uh, you describe it as uh, my book as a journey. That's certainly how I saw it and how I felt it. And, you know, um, we're, um, that, that journey doesn't stop. It's, uh, and the, the, there's, always, there's always new choices and perplexing uh, signs along, uh, uh, sights and signs along the way to try and make sense of. So, uh, yeah, no, I've, 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 I think we've, we've, um, we've raised some interesting ideas today. So thank you very much for the opportunity to do that. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Actual Fluency Podcast. I really appreciate having you here today. Just before you leave, I just want to give a quick shout out to today's sponsor, which is italki. Italki is a tutoring platform where you can find affordable tutors for every language in the world, pretty much. So get started today and get a free $10 credit when you book your first lesson. If you go to actualfluency.com forward slash italki, and that's spelled I-T-A-L-K-I. So give it a go and feel how tutoring can really boost and enhance your language learning.